The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Just by way of background, um, ADATA is a research lab at the College of William & Mary. Um, it basically tries to answer the question, who is doing what where, for whom, and to what effect? And one component of that is tracking uh, Chinese development finance. Initially, we did that just uh, to Africa, all of uh, Chinese development finance to Africa over roughly the last 15 years. We're now in the process of expanding the scope of our data collection and analysis efforts to the entire world. So many of the results that I'm going to present today will be specific to Africa, um, but by the end of the calendar year, um, we'll be publicly releasing a, global, a data set that has global coverage for Chinese development finance activities funded since 2000 up until the present day. All of the data um, are made publicly available um, through a, a special website uh, called china.aiddata.org. Um, and the general um, sort of theme of uh, my talk this evening um, is essentially confronting some of the um, big claims that have been made about uh, the drivers and the impacts of Chinese development finance with granular and reasonably comprehensive data about uh, the actual projects that China is funding um, overseas. So let's start with um, what is the conventional wisdom? Um, there are some very big, uh, almost audacious claims that are made about um, why China's providing uh, aid to Africa and other regions and what the impacts of these financial flows are. Um, and I, uh, just a shorthand, uh, refer to the conventional wisdom or the sort of narrative that's been popularized as the rogue donor narrative. Who has been um, advancing this narrative? Um, here's a quote from Moses Naim, who was the editor of Foreign Policy for 15 years. And I think this is actually worth um, just stating um, uh, reciting so that we're all on the same page. He said, what we have here in states like China, um, as well as Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela, are regimes that collectively represent a threat to healthy, sustainable development. If they continue to succeed in pushing their alternative development model, they will succeed in underwriting a world that is more corrupt, chaotic, and authoritarian. And I'll skip ahead. He then goes on to say, they're motivated by a desire to further their own national interests, advance an ideological agenda, or sometimes line their own pockets. Rogue aid providers couldn't care less about the long-term well-being of the population of the countries that they aid. That's a very, very strong claim. So we're going to put this claim to the test this evening. When did he say it? <laughs> this is in an article uh, that he published in Foreign Policy, I believe, in 2009 or 2010, in an article in, entitled Rogue Aid. Here's Hillary Clinton uh, making uh, sort of a veiled criticism of China, saying America is committed to a model of sustainable partnership that adds value rather than extracts it. America will stand up for democracy and universal human rights even when it might be easier to look the other way and keep the resources flowing. Barack Obama, in advance of a July 2015 trip to Africa, said China's been able to funnel an awful lot of money into Africa basically in exchange for raw materials that are being extracted from Africa. Economic relation, relationships can't simply be about building countries' infrastructure with foreign labor or extracting Af Africa's natural resources. Um, so these are not fringe characters making these very strong claims about um, China's intentions and the impacts of its activities. Okay, so um, unfortunately, uh, China does not participate in um, the international reporting regimes that exist for aid and other concessional sources of international development finance. Um, at the OECD in Paris, there's a registry called the Creditor Reporting System. It's a voluntary disclosure system of the activities that you're supporting. China is not a member of the OECD DAC, and as such, it has no uh, obligation or is not even really under any pressure to participate in that system. There's also a regime called the International Aid Transparency Regime. It's also a voluntary disclosure regime, and China has opted out of that. It has um, stated it has no intention of joining. So in the face of um, this kind of informational vacuum, the government itself does not publish 
comprehensive records about at the project level about what it's funding. It has, through various white papers, released certain aggregate statistics, but it's very difficult to drill down and know from where these aggregate statistics are coming. And so ADATA began an effort in 2013 to build from the ground up, from the project level, a comprehensive database of all Chinese-funded development projects. And I'll give you a definition of what we actually measure and what we don't measure in a, in a moment. The methodology that we've developed is called TUF, which stands for Tracking Underreported Financial Flows. And essentially, this methodology, which is publicly available, it's 90 pages if you want to read it in all its glory, um, it draws upon four different sources of data. And it essentially tries to uh, triangulate and synthesize unstructured qualitative information, all of which is in the public domain, but that has not been codified into structured quantitative mm -hmm. data. So there are four broad categories of data that we're drawing upon to identify these projects. Um, the first is um, English language, Chinese language, and local language news reports. I think about 54% of the sourcing comes from media reports. Um, in fact, the Chinese government and its various organs release quite a lot of information about Chinese projects. They do not release it in the form of a database, but they have various annual reports, um, there's website uh, on economic and commercial counselors offices, there's detailed information about projects. So the whole purpose of the tough methodology is to try to take all this unstructured information and transform it into uh, structured data. Um, interestingly, you know, China is one party to a bilateral transaction. And so it turns out that the debtor nations or the recipient nations of aid and loans from China, they have their own information systems to track incoming financial flows. So the, uh, the uh, TUF methodology systematically draws upon the data that is um, owned and operated by um, owned and operated information systems by finance and planning ministries in Africa and now in other regions like Asia and Latin America. We cull the data from these recipient and debtor country databases and integrate them into our kind of master database. And then finally, uh, because China does not um, disclose much information and because China is one of the largest and fastest growing uh, donors and lenders, um, it is the subject of an incredible number of detailed case studies by PhD students and scholars and NGOs, you name it. And so we also have a protocol uh, for integrating uh, the data, uh, in quotation, the data, the, the information that's being sourced um, through these um, academic reports and NGO reports. Um, what has it led to? So the database covers, um, at this moment, uh, about 2,500 development projects from 2000 to 2013. It draws on about 6,500 discrete information sources. We've geolocated the precise latitude and longitude coordinates of the discrete interventions supported by these projects. Um, down to, in many cases, the village level or even the street corner level. Um, and these projects add up to about $94 billion of uh, funding over that period of 2000 to 2013. <coughs> that aggregate estimate is netting out um, all projects that were canceled and suspended. So they were announced but subsequently canceled or suspended. It also nets out pledges, uh, meaning money that was um, uh, unofficially pledged from the Chinese government um, to a, a counterpart government, but it never resulted in an official commitment, a legally binding agreement between the Chinese government and its counterpart government. And then as I mentioned, uh, that this is the empirical scope of the database as it exists today on china.adata.org. By the end of this calendar year, this database will grow to cover every low income, lower middle income, uh, an upper middle income country uh, that China provides development finance to. How is it developed? Um, Aid Data has a core team uh, that's responsible for applying the tough methodology to China specifically. And I should, um, as a footnote, just mention that uh, the tough methodology is not China specific. Um, we also use it to track financial flows from other donors and lenders that do not disclose detailed project information. For example, uh, we use the tough methodology to uh, track flows from Qatar and from Saudi Arabia. Um, and the database and the methods that underlie it 
um, were developed by a core team at Aid Data, but in partnership with a, a distributed network of economists and political scientists at a number of universities, at Harvard, University of St. Gallen, um, uh, University of Heidelberg, etc. Um, and this network is a, a group of researchers who are united by a shared interest in having better data to study what are the motivations for Chinese development of finance and, their, and the impacts. When you go to the website, you can download all of the projects in an Excel spreadsheet and go and do your analysis. Um, but there are also um, interactive project pages. So this is an imperfect process, triangulating and synthesizing information from lots of different sources. So we've embraced that uncertainty and that imprecision. And so we've built a dynamic platform that allows anyone to suggest ways that we can uh, correct a project record. If they provide a new source of information, we then have a protocol for reviewing the project record to see if it, it merits uh, making a change. So if you go to the individual project pages, you can find the exact locations. You can notify uh, one of our project managers. I have a, a source. You got the interest rate wrong on this loan. It was modified six months after the loan was approved. Here's some source documentation. Please update your project record. So we have benefited from these kind of uh, contributions from people with private knowledge or knowledge that's in the public domain but that we have not sussed out. Um, and these kind of this distributed network of, in many cases, users of the data that want to make sure the data is as accurate as possible, we feed that forward into future iterations of the data set. So it's a, sort of a constantly improving, um, constantly improving data set. So we have investigative journalists who will take the geo uh, coordinates for the projects and they'll get in a Land Rover and drive to the, inter the, the intervention sites to figure out, you know, um, are they doing what they said they were going to do at that site? And then they'll you know, send a field report to us when they finish, finish their material. We're, we'll upload to the project document. This is an example of a project, uh, a project page. There's an individual web page for each and every project. Um, and you can upload videos, you can upload documents, you can provide sources, um, and then we're responsible for curating that information and mm -hmm. using it uh, to, to modify the records when warranted. You can also find all the underlying source information. How reliable is this methodology? Um, we uh, received a modest amount of funding from the United Nations to um, field a ground truthing <coughs> exercise in two countries in 2013 after about a year of implementing the methodology. And the idea was, okay, this is a remote data collection method. What if we go bottom up and we try to ground truth uh, the projects that you are saying exist and ground truth the details, the finer details of these projects, the, the proposed activities, the, the latitude and longitude coordinates, the financial terms of the transaction. So we hired uh, professional enumerators, a team of enumerators in Uganda and South Africa to go to each one of the projects identified through TUF and to do on-site um, interviews with the project staff and to also uh, take photographs, collect direct observational evidence of whether you know, what we think is going on is actually going on. And um, there are uh, certain biases that we have identified uh, that are uh, harder to suss out through a, a remote method than ground truthing, but they are the exceptions to the rule. We found generally very high correspondence between the projects identified through TUF and then projects identified and vetted uh, through this bottom-up enumeration process. And that work has been uh, published in peer-reviewed journals so that we've gone through a stress testing process and we, re we re release new iterations of the methodology on roughly an every 18-month schedule. And if you look at the 1.0 version, the 1.1, the 1.2, each iteration sort of gets smarter as we detect biases that we weren't aware of and then we retrospectively uh, revise the historical time series when we realized. So, for example, um, we found out that we were um, 
systematically missing some technical assistance activities in the health sector. We were contacted by the Chinese government. They provided detailed records on projects that we missed, and we corrected the record. And so all of the data that they provided to us, we uploaded to the site, and I think they added something like 240 records to the database. Um, so this is very much a, um, a sort of group effort. Um, okay, now pivoting towards um, how we can use these data to glean insights and try to test uh, the conventional wisdom that we kind of started the talk with. First, we just have to lay down some sort of um, key terms and definitions. So the empirical scope parameters for this data collection initiative is that we are collecting data on something called official finance. What in the world is official finance? Official finance is, is the sum of official development assistance and something that the OECD calls other official flows. So what are these two categories? ODA um, are projects that have developmental intent. That is, they don't have commercial intent or representational intent. And they have a grant element of at least 25% uh, or higher. So if it's a grant, it has a 100% grant element. If it's a concessional loan, there's a methodology to figure, to sort of back out what's the percentage of that loan that is effectively a grant element. If it exceeds 25%, it gets, and it has developmental um, purposes or intent, it gets classified as ODA. If it's below the 25% threshold and or if it lacks development intent, meaning the motivation might be I'm providing a uh, non-concessional loan because I want to be paid back with interest. <laughs> There's a commercial motivation. Then that would fall in this second category of other official flows. Um, export credits, both on the seller side and the, um, and the buyer's side, they also fall in this category of um, other official flows. So ODA plus OOF equals official finance. Keep that in mind, because that will be important. If we want to make apples to apples comparisons of what, let's say, the US is providing versus what China is providing, uh, you know, what we see in the existing debate and literature is a lot of comparing what I like to call apples and dragon fruits, right? Where we hold China to a different standard because we're not using a common set of terms and definitions. So we've tried to be uh, quite careful about using the very same terms and definitions when we make comparisons across different suppliers of development finance. Okay, so uh, at the very top line level, looking across that 2000 to 2013 period, everyone wants to know, uh, you know, how, how much aid, quote unquote aid, does China provide to Africa versus the US? Well, according to the data that's, uh, that results from the Tuft methodology, um, you can see that a very large percentage, well, at the top line level, uh, the US provides something like $107 billion over that period of time. It works out to somewhere around six point, uh, I think, uh, for the, the ODA comp uh, component is the, is the $93 billion here. I think that works out to about $6.6 .6 billion a year. And if you compare it to China, China's providing about $94 billion of official finance, um, of which about $32 billion is ODA. So that works out to about $2.25 billion of ODA, the strictest definition of aid. So when you hear people say China is providing as much, if not more, aid to Africa than the U.S., this is flatly wrong. If you're using, if you're doing the apples to apples comparison of Chinese ODA to U.S. ODA, in fact, the U.S. is providing nearly three times as much ODA to Africa as China. However, as with so many of the persistent myths that are out there about Chinese development finance, there, there always seems to be this sort of kernel of truth in the myth, right? And so if you look at the, uh, if you look at the, the green block for China, this is those non-concessional flows or insufficiently concessional flows, as well as activities that <coughs> lack developmental intent, right? So China provides a lot of loans at LIBOR or they provide loans that are partially concessional. Right? And so if you add ODA to OOF, then in aggregate terms, the U.S. only provides slightly more 
than China, right? So that is why, that's one of the reasons why I think many pundits and politicians labor under the false presumption that China and the US provide you know, comparable amounts of aid or even that China provides more. In fact, it's more nuanced. China mm -hmm. provides a disproportionate amount of funding through the OOF channel. It provides relatively little ODA whereas the opposite is true for the United States. It provides very little of OOF, it provides the lion's share of its funding through ODA. But I've simplified, uh, I've simplified this 90, 94, 95 uh, billion dollars for China. In fact, there is a residual category uh, <laughs> that we call vague official finance, where we have insufficient information either about the intent of the project or about the grant element, the concessionality rate, to make a hard and fast determination about whether the flow is ODA or OOF. And so just for simplicity, I lumped strict OOF together with this residual category. And the residual, residual category, uh, we really don't know. It could be ODA or it could be OOF. But the reason why I lumped them together is because when you look at the observable attributes of these vague projects, Many times they look very much like OOF projects. They're very large loans, oftentimes where we don't know the maturities or you know, we don't know all of the detailed repayment terms. They're often in sectors where OOF is disproportionately represented. Uh, so for example, transport or energy as opposed to health and education. Um, so we, we have a hunch that that residual category is disproportionately represented by OOF. But this shows you the imprecision. There is this unavoidable imprecision in the tough method methodology. And I can tell you, we're now on the third iteration of the data set. That red or, or kind of fuchsia um, segment gets smaller every year because as we gain better information about the, intense, the intent of the projects, as well as the concessionality rates, we update the records in a backward revision way, and thus we're able to put them in either the ODA or OOF bucket. Okay, I think I already covered this. Um, okay, so let's jump right ahead to that very strong claim that Moses Naim made, and then you heard echoed by highest level US politicians about the underlying motivations of the Chinese government for providing aid. Um, we've done a statistical analysis of the data produced through Tuff, looking at what are the best predictors of where money goes. Why do some countries get more ODA than others, Chinese ODA? And why do some countries get more Chinese OOF than others? And here's what we find. You'll remember what the myth, or the, the conventional wisdom rather, was you know, China funnels aid disproportionately to corrupt countries, to natural resource countries, uh, countries that are rich in natural resources and countries where China wants to gain a commercial foothold. And in fact, the statistical analysis shows there's no evidence that China disproportionately provides ODA to corrupt countries. There is no evidence that China disproportionately provides ODA to natural resource rich countries. There is no evidence that China provides disproportional amounts of ODA to countries where it has a commercial interest, okay? But as with so many of these myths, there is a kernel of truth or a kernel of wisdom, which I will come back to in a moment. Another uh, very bold claim that we can puncture with the statistical evidence is you'll remember Moses Naim said, they don't have the well-being of the local recipient popu population and interests that are out for themselves. Okay, well, what's the observable implication of that claim? The observable implication is that a Chinese ODA should not be going to particularly poor or populous countries, uh, populous, not populist, uh, countries where needs are greater, development needs are greater. In fact, we find China, China, Chinese ODA behaves in almost the exact same way that we see Western aid allocated. It disproportionately goes to poor countries and it disproportionately goes to countries with large numbers of people, populous countries. Um, so not all that different from Western aid. So this kind of narrative about China being a rogue donor and somehow different from Western donors just is not supported by the statistical analysis that we have done. Um, Another claim that's often made is China uses aid um, to purchase 
uh, or curry political influence with governing elites in developing countries. Okay, let's put it to the test. One of the, uh, one of the indicators that uh, international relations scholars often use um, to get at this issue of trying to buy influence is UN voting, voting in the UN General Assembly. And sure enough, we do find that Chinese aid is used to either buy or reward foreign policy support. Countries that either are very well aligned with the UN, uh, with China in the UN General Assembly, or close a gap between their existing voting and uh, China's uh, existing voting, they are rewarded disproportionately with Chinese aid. So yes, there is some face validity to that claim, but the key counterpoint to it is that if you run the very same analysis for US ODA, or you do it for West, Western donors writ large, what you see is everyone else is playing this game. They're all rewarding countries with more aid when they align their their votes in the US, uh, UN General Assembly. In fact, a very little known law passed in the US in 1985 stipulates that the State Department must consider quote unquote important votes in the UN General Assembly when making aid disbursement decisions. Um, and that trickles down even into the decisions that USAID is making. So again, uh, this, this notion that China is in some ways unique or different, um, you know, we just can't find very much support in the statistical evidence. Just to uh, help you understand the substantive meaning or significance of this, this trading of aid for votes, the economist um, did an analysis. Um, they, they asked for model predictions from the statistical models that they created, that we created, and they said, look, you guys have this fancy statistical model. Tell us, if, there, if we took a country like Rwanda that does not vote very often with China in the UN General Assembly, 67% of the time they vote with China, and we just <coughs> artificially increased Rwanda's uh, voting similarity in the UN to the highest possible level, in the, in the sample, the highest possible level is Egypt. Egypt votes with China 93% of the time. What would the ODA payoff be? And the, the, uh, what the statistical model spits out as a prediction is a 289% increase in Chinese ODA. So we're talking about you know, sort of non-trivial um, amounts of money. Okay, but as I told you, many of these myths are uh, you know, have half-truths or kernels of truth lying beneath them. And one of the biggest sources of confusion and debate is that when claims are made about Chinese aid, those claims are not often being made specifically about Chinese ODA. People are lumping together apples and dragon fruits. They're putting Chinese ODA together with Chinese OOF. Remember, Chinese OOF, by definition, if it's not concessional or it's less concessional and it doesn't have development intent but it has commercial intent, then we should expect those flows to disproportionately favor countries where China has commercial interests. And sure enough, the statistical evidence bears this out. Chinese OOF disproportionately flows to countries where China has a commercial interest, it's trading partners, for example. Um, interestingly, we also find, you remember this, this common claim that we hear, Chinese aid goes to corrupt countries or natural resource rich countries. What we find is this is not true for Chinese ODA, it is true for Chinese OOF. Um, in the discussion period, I, I won't elaborate on this point, but there are actually some very good reasons why China uh, provides disproportionate amounts of Chinese OOF to resource-rich countries and corrupt countries. And it's, there's sort of more there than, me, than meets the eye. So uh, if someone could remind me to come back to that, I, I, will, uh, I will hit that point. Okay, so I've been talking about cross-national patterns in where Chinese ODA and Chinese OOF goes. Now I want you to narrow your aperture to a single country and think about how are funds allocated once they arrive in that country between different subnational localities, right? So remember that claim, right? The claim was China's using aid to uh, curry political favor or buy the affections or political allegiances of governing elites in the developing world. So are there 
let, let's just take a, a case. So this is a village, uh, Yoni in Sierra Leone, and uh, it may not look particularly fancy to your eye, but this very small village in the rural hinterlands of Sierra Leone has an immaculate set of public schools that have been constructed. And they also have some homes uh, that by African standards are um, quite desirable places to live. So why might, uh, you know, what, what might be underlying this kind of conspicuous uh, pattern? What's going on here? Well, it turns out this is the hometown of the elected president uh, of Sierra Leone. And so Chinese aid ended up for some reason in the president's hometown. Is this a uh, statistical anomaly or is there something going on here uh, that we need to dig into? So we've geo-referenced down to very uh, fine subnational spatial scales where Chinese aid and o Chinese ODA and Chinese OOF is going. This is just showing you which subnational localities are getting the most Chinese ODA and OOF and which are getting none or very little. If we do, so we, we've pinpointed um, the lat long coordinates of all these projects. And when we do a, a sort of rigorous econometric analysis to figure out what predicts where this money goes between subnational localities, we find that one of the strongest predictors of where the money goes is whether that locality is the birth region of the elected leader. And if we run the very same analysis for World Bank projects, we georeference World Bank projects, we find no such source of domestic political targeting bias. So again, when you hear these claims, these very kind of overarching, far-reaching claims, sometimes there is an element of truth. Why might we see this pattern? Well, it turns out China has a, a process of delivering aid that is markedly different from the way that most Western donors and lenders operate. Most Western donors and lenders are very supply driven. They have an idea of what project that they want to do. They choose who they want to consult with about the design of that program. And then they rush headlong into implementing that program. And they may, uh, you know, have a line ministry counterpart, but it's sort of the donor is making the determination or the lender is making the determination about how to design and deliver the program. China has a system that kind of flips that notion on its head and it says, we are not going to implement development projects unless they are demanded by the host government. So they have a request-based aid provision system. And typically, perhaps because of Chinese political culture, there is deference to requests that come from either the office of the prime minister or the office of the president. And so it's no surprise that if you build an uh, aid project selection system that emanates from the president's office, that projects end up being disproportionately represented in the president's hometown, where oftentimes in Africa, this is part of the patronage network, right? This is how you, uh, this is how you shore up your domestic political base. Um, so we think that these patterns, we don't know with certainty, but we think that the, the variation that we see between China and the World Bank on this dimension is likely related to the amount of discretion that the funder provides to the host government in deciding where to cite um, these individual interventions. Um, but just in the interest of uh, fairness, I don't want to lead you to believe that the World Bank is this uh, sort of paragon of targeting efficiency and you know finding the best places to put these projects. If we just take a subnational measure of GDP, of local economic well-being, we find that China and the World Bank are equally bad at targeting the areas of greatest need. You would hope if you're providing aid to African countries that you're you know, uh, targeting the areas of greatest need, perhaps where poverty is most severe or where health and education needs are most severe. In fact, we find the opposite. We find that both Chinese development projects and World Bank projects are disproportionately cited in the wealthier regions of the country. And we can, if you'd like, in the discussion period, talk about why that might be the case. Just a note very quickly about the potential uh, political consequences of this aid on demand system. Let me just give you 
an example of how this plays out in a, a, a live sort of political context. So come with me to Sudan. Um, and I want to tell you about um, the run-up to the presidential elections in Sudan in 2010. Um, there is something in Sudan called the Hamdi Axis. And the Hamdi Axis is the domestic political support base. It's uh, you know, the, 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 the base of the president. It also happens to be where the president's <coughs> hometown is lo located. The village of Shendi is in this period, this space that I'm about to show you. Why is it called the Hamdi Axis? Because a former finance minister in Sudan, Abdel Rahim Hamdi, later became the ruling party's chief political strategist. And he said, look, we're going to face elections uh, coming up here very soon. Um, and we need a strategy for political survival. How are we going to stay in power and not be voted out? And he argued that the ruling party's electoral fortunes would hinge critically on its ability to deliver public services and jobs to its base within the Hamdi Axis in the Nile River Valley. And he correctly anticipated in a, in a, a political strategy document that has since been unearthed that Western donors and lenders would not be willing to play this game, that they would have lots of safeguards in place to prevent the funds from being concentrated in the domestic political base, but they, he correctly anticipated that non-Western donors and lenders would grant higher levels of discretion in where the funding was actually directed. So if you look at this, uh, I guess a quadrangle, <laughs> it's got a polygon, um, that is the Hamdi axis. This is the domestic political support base of the president, and those uh, red dots are Chinese development projects. And you can see the Chinese development projects run right through the middle of the axis, going down from the oil fields in south, uh, the southern part of Sudan, all the way up to Port Sudan. So China was involved in rehabilitating Port Sudan. It was involved in building roads in this area. And generally, its projects were involved in essentially building and rehabilitating infrastructure in this very politically consequential uh, part of the country. And I should note, on your, uh, over here on the western side of the country is Darfur. That is where the lion's share of western aid is. Much of, many of the western uh, development and humanitarian projects are much more focused on meeting sort of immediate needs that are particularly acute in that part of the country. And that's part of the reason why Hamdi anticipated that the western donors would not be a, uh, you know, they could not be convinced to steer money into the, this uh, sort of eastern corridor of the country. And his strategy, by most accounts, was successful. Uh, President Bashir was reelected in 2010 with 68% of the vote, and he, uh, you know, got a lot of his votes from his base where he delivered these goods and services that were partly financed by not only Chinese, uh, Chinese donors and lenders, but also Arab donors and lenders that were willing to grant uh, similarly high levels of discretion. So now I want to uh, take on a different uh, claim or, you know, perhaps it's a myth, and that is that uh, okay, so these projects have some problems, they're subject to some political biases, but what is the bottom line, right? At the end of the day, we care about the impact on development outcomes, right? So even if these projects are subject to some kind of politi domestic political manipulation, at the end of the day, if these projects are ex accelerating economic growth, delivering development dividends, um, that's the, you know, many, many people would say this is sort of the the ultimate metric of success against which we should be judging Chinese-funded development projects and any other development projects. Um, so Aid Data recently completed a geospatial impact evaluation where we merged all of those georeference data on the precise latitude and longitude coordinates of the Chinese development projects, and we also did the same for the World Bank development projects. And then we took high-resolution, time-varying data from satellites, nighttime light imagery, which it turns out is very strongly correlated with wealth, uh, wealth, wealth and economic well-being in the developing world. It varies on a scale from 0 to 63. 0 is completely unlit. 63 is lit up like a Christmas tree. And it turns out when you're at 63, that tends to correlate with very high levels of wealth. And if you're at 0, that correlates with poverty. Um, so we've taken um, this 
high resolution nighttime light data, we've merged it with the intervention data, as well as a bunch of control variables, what do we find? We find uh, that Chinese development projects have a substantial impact on local economic growth in Africa, and we do not find that same effect from World Bank projects. Um, to give you a sense of the, the magnitude of this effect, um, at, a, at the subnational level, if there is a 10% increase in Chinese development finance, the model that we've created uh, predicts that that would lead to an increase in night, per capita nighttime light output, which you can think of as uh, per capita GDP, of 0.6 to 1.1%, which then when translated into actual GDP terms is about 0.2 to 0.3 percentage points of GDP, which at first blush might seem modest, but remember, we're just talking about one class of investments, right? These are actually quite substantial impacts, um, you know, at, at the local level. So, you know, China is quite literally lighting up Africa um, through a lot of these projects that are in, you know, roads, bridges, uh, ports, uh, electricity grids, and the like. Uh, we find no evidence that World Bank projects have any comparable impact. Um, that may be a selection effect, by which I mean the World Bank has opted into sectors that are increasingly looking like the software of development as opposed to the hardware, whereas China is doubling down on the hardware of economic development. Um, we also have particularly rich data uh, we've adapted the tough methodology um, in one country to, to track uh, foreign direct investment projects. So I'm now going beyond development finance. We were just curious to see, you know, what if we ran a similar analysis merging investment projects as opposed to development projects with the very same nighttime light data? And we set up this uh, quasi-experiment with a treatment group and a control group, and what mm. we ended up finding is that Chinese investment projects are having a big impact on nighttime light growth. And if we do the same thing for US FDI, we find no such effect. So there seems to be a, a, a common pattern here, regardless of whether they're development projects um, or investment projects. Um, you know, another, so, so uh, one of the popular claims that is out there is the Chinese cut corners, they, you know, in, in their zeal to implement projects expeditiously, uh, you know, they don't build things for sustainability, and so the growth impacts or the development impacts are smaller than they could be. We can't completely rule that out, but the evidence doesn't seem to point in that direction. Another very popular claim that many of you have probably heard is, you know, China has uh, disregard for the natural environment. And sure, you know, maybe it's producing a short-term economic gain, but it's, uh, you know, degrading the natural environment, perhaps accelerating deforestation as it cuts down standing forests to build a road or some other type of infrastructure. So here again, we can turn to satellites. We have very detailed uh, data on deforestation at the five kilometer by five kilometer grid cell level. And we can set up, again, a quasi-experiment uh, where we have a treatment group and a control group to figure out, okay, let's look at the worst offenders, the big Chinese infrastructure projects where you would uh, expect to see these unintended environmental impacts. You know, what, what do we actually find? So we did this in two countries where we had particularly rich data in Tanzania and in Cambodia. Uh, the data set is like uh, nearly 27,000 of these five kilometer by five kilometer grid cells where we can track over a 15 year period the deforestation that was happening in a treated, a treated cohort and a, a, a control cohort. Um, this just gives you, this is ta southeastern Tanzania before any Chinese projects had been implemented. And then you could see these blue dots. These are Chinese uh, infrastructure projects. You can see that they tend to uh, show up in areas that had pre-existing levels of deforestation. So this is one of the primary impediments to making a cause and effect claim, right? If Chinese projects tend to go to areas that are already deforested or that are undergoing deforestation, it would be very easy to conflate correlation with causation, right? So um, what we've been focused on is trying to come up with credible counterfactual evidence. The ideal, what we want is 
We've got a treated group, that's the blue line. We've got a, a control group or a counterfactual group, that's the green line. The worst type of science would be to take the difference between the baseline level of deforestation in the, in the group that was exposed to Chinese development projects and say, yeah, they, you know, they were at about 10. And then the change was deforestation went up to 65. So 65 minus you know, 10 is 55. Wow, there are huge impacts on the natural environment. In fact, what we need to be doing is comparing the change over time between the treated group and the control group, right? So that difference is the net attributable effect. If we can estimate what would have happened in the absence of these Chinese infrastructure projects, then we want to get that differential right between that blue line and green line to understand what's the kind of uh, added effect of the Chinese infrastructure projects. And what we find is uh, a great deal of nuance and complexity in the, in the analysis. Um, really, the, the sort of takeaway uh, from this analysis is that the host government rules and regulations profoundly condition the impacts that Chinese development projects have on land cover outcomes or deforestation. So in subnational areas that are subject to formal forest protection, think of like a protected area in Tanzania. You know, they have these great game reserves. Um, in those areas where you have strict enforcement of environmental rules and regulations, we find little to no negative effect of Chinese projects accelerating deforestation. However, in these wild, wild west areas where environmental rules and regulations are, are enforced lightly or not at all, we find Chinese infrastructure projects actually make a bad, a pro a bad problem worse. So they have an accelerating effect on deforestation. So really, these kind of top line inferences or claims about China despo despoiling the environment with infrastructure projects, it really does not do justice uh, to the empirical evidence. There, there's a lot more um, nuance and complexity there. And finally, uh, you probably can't read this, so I will just give you kind of the quick summary of this. Um, we are supporting a network of researchers who are users of these data. Um, and they're using the data to answer all kinds of other questions about the effects and the effectiveness of Chinese development projects. A particularly uh, fruitful line of inquiry, empirical line of inquiry, is on China's impact on policy and on governance in host countries. Um, and also on stability, on conflict and stability. Uh, so one of the studies that's been published with this data set shows that despite the claim that when Western aid donors withdraw, uh, withdraw abruptly from a recipient country, that this leads to uh, in political instability, that finding holds, except if China is providing at least 1% of GDP in grants and loans, it provides a counterbalance or a stabilizing effect that prevents the country from falling into conflict. Um, there are some other studies that have come out that look at the relationship between Chinese development finance and uh, World Bank conditionality, generally showing uh, that recipients or borrowers are strategic, and when they have alternative sources of revenue, they have more bargaining power, and they use that bargaining power to get less stringent policy conditions imposed on them uh, by the World Bank. Um, there's also a series of studies that have come out recently that use um, fine-grained subnational corruption data. Another big claim that's out there is Chinese aid is fueling corruption for a whole variety of reasons that we can get into if, you, if you'd like. And there are now two very carefully uh, executed studies that put this claim to the test with the georeference data on the projects and georeference, subnationally georeference data on local corruption, people pay, paying bribes in villages or you know in the districts. And they find, in fact, that this is an area where China and the World Bank part ways. They find Chinese projects do accelerate local corruption. That says nothing about grand corruption. Um, and we do not uh, or the, the folks who uh, have conducted these studies find no such effect for the World Bank. So I think, you know, if I was to try to summarize, uh, you know, this is the, the sort of breadth of evidence that is now available, 
I guess I would say that the, the rogue, uh, rogue donor narrative that we started with is pretty flimsy. Uh, you know, there's the, most of the evidence, uh, the, the weight of the evidence really does not support that narrative. But, you know, I think we can uh, be somewhat sympathetic with people that harbor these illusions because some of the definitional uh, measurement considerations have led them uh, to draw these inferences for, you know, uh, reasons that are reasonable, right? So, uh, you know, people are confusing ODA and OOF and making broad claims about Chinese aid that uh, are not supported by the evidence. Now that we actually have data that allows us to do this more fine-grained analysis, it's time for our analysis itself to be more fine-grained, to be more nuanced, and to capture more of the complexity. All right, Brad, thank you very much. We have time for a few questions. Do we have any? Yeah, they're great questions. Um, maybe I'll take them in uh, reverse order. So starting with the one on, do we have nothing to fear with OOF? Um, wonderful question. So, you know, I mentioned that uh, the main determinants of where <coughs> OOF goes is countries where China has a commercial interest, uh, more corrupt countries, and natural resource rich countries. Well, at face value, when you look at that, you might think this is real cause for concern, right? Is China sort of undermining um, the existing regime among Western donors and lenders where we're you know, trying to steer resources towards well-governed countries? Um, is, does China have a natural resource acquisition motivation that is not developmental in nature, meaning it's not in the interest of the host country? But you know, I think that uh, if you sort of marry this quantitative evidence that we've gathered with some of the qualitative evidence that's been uh, gathered by others that are looking at individual transactions, you know, individual loans between China and a host government, what you find is that you know, China is, um, in many countries that are not credit worthy, um, they are using uh, natural resources as collateral, right? So they've come up with these kind of um, creative financial modalities to be able to transact with countries that are otherwise not credit worthy. Um, they're actually, in doing that, they're addressing you know, real challenges. Many of these countries can't, um, can't go get uh, loans on commercial markets. Um, and so uh, you know, I think there's, there's some merit there. There are also some problems uh, with that. Um, which we can talk about if you'd like. Uh, but the uh, other piece of that is the, the corrupt, the co bias towards corrupt countries. Well, why might that be the case? Well, you know, China has um, a different way of actually delivering development projects. Many times in the West, uh, you know, we will rely on uh, host government institutions to help in the implementation project, in the implementation process. China rarely um, uses host country implementers, and money rarely changes hands in country. That is to say, many of these projects are implemented by Chinese state-owned enterprises or by other Chinese firms where maybe there's a uh, <clears throat> export credit that was provided to a Chinese firm to enable their participation in the project. And so the fact that the financial flow is happening between the Chinese government and a Chinese private enterprise or Chinese state-owned enterprise uh, arguably limits the fiduciary risk that uh, you know, other Western donors and lenders face when they are trying to decide how, am I, how in the world am I going to do an infrastructure project in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, right? China can do that at a lower, with lower fiduciary risk uh, than, than Western donors and lenders. Um, so I think we should be, you know, not too quick to judge, I guess, um, on that front. And can you just remind me what the first question was? Yes. So my, my uh, response to this question is that the Chinese government is large, and there are politicians, and there are technocrats. And they have different interests in transparency and in data, right? So at the political level, China has made a very, um, uh, uh, they've made a public decision not to participate in the OECD's creditor reporting system, or IATI. That's a political choice. Um, however, 
there are people in the bowels of the line ministries who have to actually do analysis to support demands that they get from their overseers, right? So uh, given that China has a large and growing overseas development program, increasingly uh, analysts and other uh, government officials kind of in the mid-levels are being asked to answer questions about how programs are being targeted, how what, what the uh, impacts are of different programs. You can't do this type of analysis without good data. So what we find is that at these kind of uh, career levels, the technocrat levels, where there's a need for good information or good data, um, you know, we have great relationships with those sorts of people and a shared interest, in fact, in having accurate and comprehensive data. Um, but, you know, will we convince, um, you know, decision makers at the top of the executive branch to join the creditor reporting system or IATI? I am not very confident of that. I used to be and told that they have made the same and for this country you now and uh, the ground from China or Africa. This mm -hmm. is reported maybe by the Render Corporation. You, what's different about yours, for example? Yeah, so, so the main difference is the sourcing. Okay. So the tracking underreported financial flows methodology is eclectic in that it's drawing upon official sources media reports, and then these kind of like academic and NGO reports. The RAND database, as I understand it, is based exclusively on media reports. And so in the first iteration of our data set, um, we were heavily reliant on media reports. I think 90% of the sourcing was for media reports. And we found that that led to a number of different types of bias. And so we made a conscious effort to reduce our reliance on media reports and reduce sole sourcing. So we've made a very kind of uh, uh, concerted effort to ensure that project records are supported by diverse sources, um, particularly emphasizing whenever possible um, official sources from China or from the host government or this kind of doc, this like visual evidence, like a video or a photo that says, this project was built, right? We know that this thing happened. So we've just, uh, the, the database that was constructed for the RAND analysis, as I understand it, was um, sort of collected at a point in time to produce an, an analytical product. Um, my understanding is that it's not being updated over time um, and drawing upon these uh, diverse sources. But there are some similarities, for sure. Yeah. Do you find it is some of the complex and some of the so this is a great question. Um, <clears throat> I might actually be able to skip ahead to, um, uh, you know, one of the uh, things that we were very curious about was the Chinese white paper, right? Okay. So China itself has released various white papers um, claiming this is how much aid we provide to China, uh, to Africa. And so what we find is that in, um, in their own white paper, they say that over a three-year period from 2010 to 2012, that they provided $7.46 billion in aid. They don't define aid in the white paper in one way or another. We interpreted it as ODA, uh, but we're not certain of that. So if you divide $7.46 billion over that three-year period, you know, you're talking about what, two, two and a half uh, billion dollars or thereabouts, um, you know, of, of Chinese ODA. What does our data set suggest? Our data set, if you take a conservative uh, version, which is only projects that are completed or projects that are in implementation, our estimate in the same region, Africa, in the same period, uh, 2010 to 2012, is 5.68 billion. If you then include official commitments where like ground, the, they didn't break ground on the project, but there's a contract between uh, the Chinese government and the host government, then our estimate jumps up to 9.59 billion. If you then divide those numbers over three years, we're basically 
at the same uh, annual estimate of like two to three billion dollars of Chinese aid to Africa as the Chinese government itself. So there's not that much daylight. We've also done this even at the project level. Um, I can share this with you if you'd like, but the white paper also discloses data on like the number of stadiums we've funded and you know the number of hospitals we funded. So we said, okay, this is you know a great opportunity to cross check or cross validate. Um, and we find that in some areas, uh, you know, our sort of accuracy rate is very high, uh, like on physical observable infrastructure. In other areas, like technical assistance is a weakness of our methodology because it tends to be small amounts of, it's not even necessarily money. Many times it's in-kind human service. So if a, a doctor from a Chinese province travels to Africa and provides some sort of services, where is that getting documented? <laughs> How is that being detected? And that's why, um, that's actually a, a live case where we, un we underreported um, on Chinese uh, health activities, technical assistance activities, and someone from the Chinese government came forward and said, look, you missed a huge swath of activities. They're very small, but they're still, uh, you know, they're still important in their own right. And so we then integrated those into our data set. And then with each iteration of the methodology, we try to figure out how can we refine the methodology to increase the likelihood of detection in the next go around for these kind of difficult sectors that have low observability. Right now, the public data is for Africa. By the end of the year, we will release a data set for the world. What I've presented today is Chinese aid, Chinese ODA and OOF to Africa. Okay. Uh, do you observe any uh, tendency for uh, Chinese aid to be targeted on uh, so-called authoritarian countries more, and Western and World Bank uh, assistance uh, targeted more towards uh, either democratic African countries or countries that are clearly uh, transitioning towards democracy? It's a great, yeah, great question. Um, we, we ran this test and essentially we find no statistically significant evidence. And so the way that I interpret that is that um, there's no bias towards or bias against authoritarian regimes for, for China. I do not recall what the results showed for Western donors and lenders, but I can track that down and follow up with you and share the, share the results. Okay, we really have run out of time. Please join me in thanking Brad for a very illuminating program.